This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 229th episode... We have a bunch of news. We have some catching up to do since the Tana site filled up most of our podcast last week. And we also have an interview with Dr. Darren Panyak. And we have a good conversation, especially featuring how you can use dinosaurs to teach critical thinking, as well as dinosaur of the day, Rotosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Lalan, Ayumi, Paula Canthus, Lydia, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, and Mayu. Thank you all very much. We didn't have any new patrons this week that are getting shout outs, but if you would like to get a shout out, then again, you can head over to our Patreon page, and there is a link in our show notes. And you can also search for I Know Dino on Patreon. All sorts of ways to find it. Yes. And if you join, then you can also join in our Discord where there's a lot of good chatter going on and Garrett posts pictures. And we have other rewards too. So yeah, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, uh, first we have a new sauropod with a partial skull. Ooh. Yeah, we don't often see skulls from sauropods, so this is a pretty cool one. And thanks to Eric for sharing it with us. It was written by Leonardo Filippi and others and published in Cretaceous Research. And this sauropod, like many, is from Argentina, specifically the Sierra Barossa Formation in the Neuquén Basin. It's from about 89 million years ago, which puts it in the late Cretaceous, although it could definitely be later in the Cretaceous. They named the new sauropod Kaiju Titan Maui, and Kaiju Titan comes from, quote, Kaiju, the Japanese word that means strange beast, usually translated into English as monster, plus titan. I'm not sure why they picked a Japanese word, though. Maybe it reminded them of something. Yeah. When I googled kaiju titan, I saw some sauropod stuff, so maybe there is like some sort of sauropod thing named this already in anime. I don't know. And then Maui refers to the acronym of the Museo Municipal Argentino Urquiza. Rincón de los Sauces. Obviously, this last part isn't part of the acronym. Also, nothing to do with the Hawaiian island. Oh, yeah, Maui. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going with at first. Because <laughs> you would have like Japan and then Maui. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you drew a line between Japan and Maui, you might end up somewhere near Argentina. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> 
I haven't really seen an acronym used as the name of a dinosaur before. It's kind of interesting. With the find, they found a nearly complete neurocranium, which we usually just call the brain case, kind of the top back of the head. But that was all of the skull they found. They didn't find the jaw or the teeth or anything like that. But they did find the first few neck vertebrae that attached to the head, a tail vertebra, a sternal plate, some incomplete scapula and coracoid remains, the right tibia, an incomplete right femur, a nearly complete right humerus, the left ulna, other partial limb bones, a few hand bones, a rib, and some other fragments that might include part of the ilium. So it's kind of a scattering of all over the body. They have like bones from both the right and left side, arms and legs, but they don't have any complete limb. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of an interesting find, very fragmentary. A strange beast, one might say. One might. <laughs> In this paper especially, I kind of wish that they did an outline of the body in silhouette form and then showing which bones they found because they're so all over the place and it's hard to tell just how complete because it's like oh they have a partial this and then a partial that but sometimes a partial is like 95 percent complete and sometimes it's only like 10 percent complete so it's kind of hard to tell exactly how much of everything they found they do have pictures of the individual bones but since they're not scale with each other it can be kind of tricky the femur also looks really weird it almost looks like a rib to me because it's more complete on the top than the bottom and it, it also looks like it's bent it's like it's pretty messed up so i don't think you can tell much from the femur and they only found one and that's one of the most important bones if you're trying to estimate size and things like that so it's a little unfortunate they can't estimate the size exactly since both the femur and the humerus are incomplete although they're both pretty massive and based on comparisons to other dinosaurs, they think it's somewhere in the Giraffatitan to Notocolossus range, which puts it like very roughly in a 40 to 60 ton range of size. So it's definitely a huge titanosaur in the upper echelons. But even that's a really rough estimate because, like I said, the bones are pretty incomplete. But on the bright side, that does mean that we have a new pretty complete skull from a large titanosaur. Nice. Yeah, it, that definitely helps to fill in some gaps because we almost never find any sort of skull <laughs> remains from these titanosaurs. And in their phylogenetic analysis, they found that it's closely related to earlier titanosaurs, making it, quote, the latest basal titanosaur ever recorded, end quote, which is kind of a weird way to put it. But basically, it means it doesn't fit into some of the other groups that we've named the later titanosaurs into, like saltosaurs. So then we just call it basal because it seems like it doesn't fit into any of these later groups. And up next, we have another new dinosaur bone that was discovered, but this time on pretty much the opposite side of the Earth. This one was in Alaska in the Arctic Circle rather than pretty deep down in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> so this was published by... Ryuji Takasaki and others, and published in Scientific Reports. Based on the lead author there, it seems like you could have named that one after a Japanese thing. What'd they name it? They didn't name, well, they did name it something. They named it DMNH 2014-12-266. Catchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so based on that, you can tell that it's not really complete enough to get a full title. And I should mention that it was published in Scientific Reports which is open access, so you can see it. They found it in the Liscombe bone bed in the Prince Creek Formation in northern Alaska, 
And it's from about 69 million years ago, which is also in the late Cretaceous, like the previous one, although it's, what, about 20 million years younger. And at the time, the bone bed was still within the Arctic Circle. It's within the Arctic Circle now, too. So very Arctic. Was Arctic still Arctic? It's not like some of the Antarctic dinosaurs where they're in Antarctica, but they weren't at the South Pole when they were alive. So if somehow they were still living today, they'd be fine. I don't know. I, I heard their environment described as like a warm forest. So oh, I think it was still warmer, even though it was polar. So just you get that weird thing where like you'd have really long nights, right. and really long days. <laughs> and I'm sure it would get cooler up there than it would when you're near the equator, but not quite the extremes that we have now with permafrost and everything. Got it. So the reason it's named DMNH, I think, is because it's held in the Perot Museum's collection in Texas. And I think they inherited DMNH from the Dallas Museum of Natural History back when that was its name, sort of. I mean, at least a building, there was like some weird thing that went on with like exchanging buildings. But in any event, it's in Dallas. I don't think it's on display though, but it is potentially from a new dinosaur because it's the first Lambiosaurian hadrosaur that's been found in the area. The closest other Lambiosaurians that have been found were in Alberta, Canada. So that's a little ways away and it was quite a bit farther south too. It wasn't in like northern Alberta. It was down in like the dinosaur park formation pretty far south in Alberta. And since it's a Lambiosaurine, we know that it had a head crest because that's a defining characteristic of a Lambiosaurian hadrosaur. And since we only have one bone, you'd probably guess, well, it must have part of the head crest on it because otherwise, <laughs> how would we know it was a Lambiosaurine? And that is what it was. It was specifically the supraoccipital bone, which in hadrosaurs is the top back of the head. The supraoccipital is part of the neurocranium, which is the same as what was found in that sauropod we just talked about, Kaiju Titan. But in this case, they didn't find the whole neurocranium. They just found part of it, which is that supraoccipital part, which is the top back part. And since it's the top of the head of a Lambiosaurian, there is a crest. It's kind of the back part of a short head crest. It doesn't stick off the back of the head from what we can see. It just kind of like goes forward from that. So it's kind of the end of a short head crest, kind of like a cassowary, same little sort of <laughs> thing going on on its head. The bone is only 44.8 millimeters wide and 24.9 millimeters high, so about two inches wide and one inch tall. Pretty small. It is really small, but hadrosaurs did have pretty small heads, so it might still have been from an adult or at least a larger individual. It's not like baby size. Mm -hmm. It's also incomplete on the front side, so we can't calculate the length exactly, but the dimensions are pretty average for a Lambiosaur, which I think might be why they didn't name a new species, because when you compare it to other known Lambiosaur supraoccipitals, it's like, okay, yeah, this kind of fits in there, and that's the only bone we have, so there's nothing really unique about it. In addition to the back edge of the crest, where it's kind of fading out back into the normal slope of the head, the supraoccipital also includes, quote, well-developed squamosal bosses, end quote, which basically is one small bump on each side of the crest. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that Lambiosaurines have these, but apparently Lambiosaurines in Alberta have pretty similar squamosal bosses. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you look closely at the bones or even at, you know, well done paleo art, you'll see these little bumps next to the head crest. Yeah, usually when I think of squamosal bosses, I think of uh, Pachycephalosaurus. 
Oh, do they have squamosal muscle bosses too? Must be farther down, I suppose, like maybe, more down by the in the neck almost. Yeah, or maybe like Stygimoak or depending who you're talking to. I suppose part of that is the posture because those guys are a little bit more upright. So it looks like it's kind of at the bottom of their head. But since hadrosaurians are totally parallel to the ground, being all quadrupedal, it's still sort of the same part of the skull, but it's just like oriented in a different way. It's interesting. Couldn't hadrosaurs also be bipedal? Yeah, they could. And I guess we don't really know for this one because we don't know how big it was or anything other than... This one bone? <laughs> yeah. One thing I, I found really interesting about the article is they also tried to make some judgments about where lambiosaurines might like to live. And in the Liscombe bone bed, they believed that it was an ancient shoreline. And so far, they had already found nine non-lambiosaur hadrosaurs, basically meaning that they didn't have crests. And that was before finding this one that did have a crest. So if you do your rudimentary statistics on this, you have a one in 10 chance of having a head crest, <laughs> although it's not a great sample size. And they say that could either mean that lambiosaurs weren't well suited for the Arctic. So just like it's specific to this area, or it could mean that lambiosaurs just preferred environments away from the coast. So maybe when you were down near the coast, you had a bunch of hadrosaurs and like one lambiosaur. And then they had a picture where it was like, well, now up in the theoretical mountain, maybe there's a whole bunch of lambiosaurs and just like a couple of hadrosaurs should say non-lambiosaur hadrosaurs. There isn't a good word for that. Sometimes they use the word hadrosaurine to mean like the ones without head crests, but there's been other scientists who are like, yeah, that, that word's no good. So <laughs> I don't know what to call them other than non-lambiosaur hadrosaurs, which is kind of a disaster of a term. Part of the reason I wanted to cover this too is we just had the fun fact about cassowaries using their crests for thermoregulation and the obvious thought I had with this is, well, if it's in the Arctic and it has kind of a similar head crest to a cassowary, really, would they have needed it to dissipate extra heat if they're that far north? And I don't know. It, they say it was warmer back then, so maybe, but kind of seems unlikely that you'd have a special adaptation for dissipating heat. But maybe that's why there are less of them up there. Who knows? We got to figure out what these crests were used for. That's definitely a challenge. Yeah. It was a smaller one. It wasn't like a huge Parasaurolophus one. So maybe it was just like a remnant. Mm, of, it was slowly going away. Yeah, but still useful for like display or something. In museum news, in Springfield, the Missouri Institute of Natural Science recently got a head for their Triceratops skeleton, and their Triceratops is nicknamed Headless Henry. I guess they'll have to change the name. Now it's just regular old Henry. Yeah. Well, they've had Henry for a few years. They dug him up in Wyoming, but then there was no head. So they had... It ended up being a badly damaged replica of a head that was also too small. So they sent that back and then they got an enlarged one by 40%. <laughs> so now Henry's got a head. That's funny that they enlarged the head. 40% mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot. It is. In Calgary, Canada, there's a cleanup company called Just Junk, and they found dinosaur fossils when they're helping a family move. So the man who was moving used to look for bones, and there are apparently thousands of fossils in his home. The Royal Tyrrell Museum will be taking a look. And the man who found the fossils, he may have had permission to get these fossils. The Alberta Resources Act came about in the early 1970s. And it says that to excavate or dig up fossils, you need a permit, and then you can collect fossils from the surface on private land if you have the permit. Interesting. But that's since changed where you're not allowed to privately own them, I'm guessing? No, that act came about in the early 70s. So this man might have collected it before, or he might have had a permit after. Gotcha. 
for anyone flying through Heathrow Airport in London, between now and June 3rd in Terminal 5, you can see a dinosaur whose nickname is Skinny. It's a type of sauropod. It's not yet been officially named, but it's 13 meters long. It's going to be auctioned off in June by a French auction house, Agout, and it's expected to go for 2 million pounds. The skeleton was found in 2012 in Wyoming and has skin impressions. That's probably why it's called Skinny. Yeah, that's interesting. We talked about it a little bit on the Discord server too, and it's kind of a bummer. I think it's like 90-something percent complete, and they're calling it a Diplodocus. So it would be nice if it ended up in a museum. Mm-hmm. I was saying like it, it seems like a good fit for the British Museum now that they don't have their dippy anymore. Yeah, there was a, an article or two that was hinting at that. Like, hey, that would be great if it stayed in Britain. It would be, but it might not. And last, Jurassic World Live Tour announced dates. So the show has actors with animatronic dinosaurs. It involves a troodon named Genie and a device called the Dino Decoder that can translate dinosaur thoughts and emotions in a way that humans can understand. And Blue is also part of the show. And they have a full-size animatronic T-Rex. And... The tour starts in Columbus, Ohio this September, then moves along the east coast of the U.S., part of the Midwest. They're announcing West Coast dates, including California, sometime in the near future. We're keeping an eye on it. We're hoping it's soon because we've been wanting to see this show for a few years now. Yeah. And hopefully it's at a time when we can make it to it. Otherwise, we might have to go outside of California. So for anyone who's interested, they have dates all over the U.S. We'll share a link. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
And now on to our interview with Darren. We're here with Dr. Darren Panyak, who's an associate professor of geology and geological engineering at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, and the author of a recent paper called Dinosaurs, a Catalyst for Critical Thought. Thanks for uh, chatting with us today. You are more than welcome. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, so this paper really piqued our interest because we like to talk about, yeah, dinosaurs being kind of a gateway to science. So this is right up our alley. <laughs> yeah, I often I often refer to them as just that, as sort of the gateway to science, as, as the as the hook you use to to get to get people pulled in, you know, and then they can stay interested in dinosaurs or they can go on to, you know, different things. Yeah. They work very well in that capacity. Definitely. What inspired you to write this paper? Um, so I've been teaching this class for, uh, about 10 years. So I've been teaching this dinosaurs class for about 10 years and I've been, uh, gradually incorporating some critical thought exercises into this class over the course of that decade. And at this point it was just time. It was just time to get, get this stuff out there. Plus I was asked to contribute to a, uh, to a symposium on paleontology education. And I thought this is perfect. Nice. Yeah. And the class that you teach, or that you've been teaching for 10 years, that one, anybody at the school can take it? No prereqs? Yes. Yep. There are no prereqs at all. So I get, we're a science and engineering school. Uh, so we primarily get science and engineering students. But there are a few departments, such as like a, a pre-nursing degree or what's called an interdisciplinary science degree that's basically getting you set up for any sort of advanced law or medical degree or anything. So we get a few, you know, sort of non-science student, students in here, but primarily it's science and engineering students and no prerequisites. Anyone can take the course. Cool. So I know in the paper, you mentioned three methods that you use. Can you tell us a little bit about the methods and the critical thought exercises that go with it? Absolutely. Yeah. And so just to give you a little background, there's a great story about how this all started. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of students interested in paleontology here. Of course, we're in a part of the country where where paleontology is pretty prevalent, lots of different ages and types of fossils here. And so we get a lot of students coming interested in paleontology, and they understandably get fired up about dinosaurs. They mm -hmm. love them some dinosaurs. Yep. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. And so uh, it was the second year of teaching this class. And I was doing a, a unit, a lecture on pachycephalosaurs, on the dome skull dinosaurs. And I decided to do sort of a mock debate or a, a pros and cons sort of exercise, basically outlining the two sides of the butting heads argument. Did, mm -hmm. they think, did these things butt heads? Did they not? Well, you don't get two or three mechanical engineers in a room before you very quickly realize that butting a sphere against a sphere is not really a good idea. So just <laughs> the physics and the, the ballistics of that and stuff are, are just, it does not work very well. <laughs> yep. And so that coupled with a number of other, you know, conclusions led the students to believe this probably wasn't really plausible, these dinosaurs butting heads. But in light of this, the students got really agitated, hmm. more so than I thought they would. And so I asked them, well, you guys, what's what, what's going on here? What's up? It's all right. What's going on? And they said, well, we grew up with this image of pachycephalosaurus butting heads. And now <laughs> it seems as if it's not true. You know, what What do we do with that? And this was when I realized that they're engaging in a type of, of a logical um, disconnect, a logical fallacy, where they were letting their emotions of nostalgia and uh, familiarity override their reception to 
the logical data at hand. And so this was when this all really started. This was when I was like, I can do a little more with this. And I really started then with the logical fallacies. Mm -hmm. So I started with the logical fallacies side of things and introducing them to these concepts of flawed logic and reasoning and then presenting them, presenting these things in a, these fallacies in a quote unquote safe dinosaur oriented format. But then once they're familiar with the, uh, with the fallacy, then presenting the real world, maybe sort of emotionally or politically more controversial issue, mm. but in introducing them to these, these fallacies in a safe context actually really works surprisingly well because you sort of head off that, that emotional response right off the bat, and they're much more open and receptive to, to the logic. So let me give you an example. All right? the, the, the example that I love is there's a logical fallacy out there that is its fancy name is post hoc ergo prompter hoc. Mm-hmm. It's a fancy Latin name. But really, it just basically means inferring causation from correlation. So it basically just means event B happened after event A, therefore A had to be the cause of event B. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful example uh, about how global warming is caused by a decline in pirate costumes. <laughs> <laughs> because if you if you correlate the decline of, of pirate garb with the average rise in average global temperatures, well, yeah, they're correlated. So clearly <laughs> one must have caused the other. <laughs> yep. I love those. I think there's a whole website dedicated there, just to that. There's a whole, <laughs> there, there is, I think, yeah, yeah. Well, the one I use with dinosaurs is the uh, bolide impact at the end of the Cretaceous that ultimately we believe resulted in the demise of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. One of the problems with extinctions and paleontology is we can show multiple, multiple, multiple lines of correlation. We can get the timing down. We can show that, you know, this thing, this bolide hit at the exact time and place that would have had a detrimental impact on dinosaur populations at this time period. But getting that true cause and effect relationship is nearly impossible. Yeah. Simply because we don't have the data. We just don't have the data to do that. And so this is where I introduced this concept of, yeah, we may have quite a bit of data supporting the correlation between the bolide impact and the extinction of the dinosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous. But we're probably never going to be able to 100% solidify our case for that being the direct cause. Yeah, that's probably the most difficult one of all the logical fallacies in terms of paleontology, because it's pretty much just a list of things that happened. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> what else exactly. Can you that's, do? Yep, that's 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 all we can do. Yep. And so once they understand this, once they understand, yeah, we're never going to get you know completely solid causation with these events. Then I uh, remind them about the erroneous link between vaccines and autism, mm-hmm. which is the same uh, faulty premise, right? So these uh, children are getting vaccinated and they end up showing uh, symptoms of autism post-vaccination. Well, one, we now know the paper responsible for this was bunk. It was based on bad data. But two, even before we knew that, we knew that there was not a whole lot of rigorous correlation between these two things. And so this introduces them to this notion that, well, the anti-vax movement is basically predicated on a logical fallacy. Yep. And of course, this has very real world complications, as we're seeing now with the measles outbreak in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Yeah, it's really true. It's really interesting 
I've seen people talk about logical fallacies because I really love them too. And uh, <laughs> like once you're aware of a certain type of logical fallacy, you can find it anywhere. Oh my God, they're everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yep. What is What has been seen cannot be unseen. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, yep. Yep. You also talk in the paper the second method of literature review. Yeah, and and reviewing the primary literature in paleontology and in all sciences is becoming much more common despite students maybe not having the prerequisite background knowledge that they need. Uh, it's becoming much more common because students are gaining firsthand knowledge of how you know scientific publication works. And so more and more university professors are being encouraged to involve the primary literature in their courses. And so I do it. But because I have such a wide array of students, some geology, paleontology oriented types, some engineers, some completely non-science types. I had to kind of distill how we reviewed these papers. Mm -hmm. And so I break it up into what's called uh, Bloom's hierarchy. You know, Bloom's hierarchy is basically a, a, a pedagogical sort of breakdown of how we uh, present new material to students. And I basically have them look at the cognitive and the effective sides of the paper which basically means that cognitive is what's the information in the paper. And the effective side is basically how is the material delivered? How is it presented? Hmm. And so then what this results in, I have them ask two questions. I'll have them on the cognitive side ask the question, what did I learn from this paper? So what was the information that this paper provided me? And then the second question on the effective side is, how did I react to this paper and why? Hmm. And you've got to separate these two when you're looking at some scientific papers because a lot of times you can get agitated or upset about a scientific paper. It has nothing to do with the material in the paper. It has to do with how it was how it was presented. And so, yeah, and so we uh, we we break these things apart. I actually just just did this in class today. Uh, we had a literature literature discussion, and the cognitive side. Generally, the students that speak up readily in terms of the cognitive facets of the paper are the students who have some background knowledge, who are geologists or biologists or paleontologists. And so that side really appeals to them because they can kind of repeat the information that was presented in the paper, double check it with, uh, with me, the instructor, make sure it's right. But when we move over to the effective side, you know, the how did you react to this paper and why, this is much more approachable to everyone. Because mm -hmm. everyone can tell something like, that diagram is horrible, <laughs> or this paper is or organized awfully, you know. So everyone can have a say in that. And that oftentimes promotes much more lively discussion when we talk about the effective side of a paper. And of course, this doesn't just involve scientific papers. You know, they learn some lessons such as, well, this was a paper that was based on a very solid premise mm -hmm. with well-executed scientific protocols, but I hated it because it was disorganized, the writing was awful, <laughs> the figures were irrelevant, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it instills this lesson that it's not enough for you to have your cognitive ducks in a row. You've got to be able to have a comprehensible presentation. Yeah, I have that problem pretty frequently reading papers where, I mean, I've been reading these journal articles for many years now. And I, I don't have a formal background in paleontology, but I'm an engineer by training. So I'm pretty comfortable with big jargony words. With, with, with the lingo. Yeah. Yep, yep. But sometimes you get a paper and even the abstract is so specific 
to that like subfield that you can't even make heads or tails of what they're trying to tell you in a summary. And then it's like, I'll just give up. I might look at the pictures and see if that can give me like inroads. But nine times out of 10, I'm just, I just assume if you can't bring it down into some sort of level that just somebody who's a fan of paleontology at least can understand the brief overview of, there's probably not anything in there that's going to be like super interesting to a broad range of people. But that might not be true. It could just be that they're not the best at writing in a approachable manner. (laughs) Well, and there, that's another thing that we, we address with these papers too, is we, I tell them what, there are other considerations as well. For example, what's the journal you're publishing in? Mm -hmm. You know, today we reviewed a paper that was published in nature and because nature papers have to be very short, a lot of times they can be, overly technical because the authors are using the lingo to save page space you Mm -hmm. know they have a very specific word and so we we you know we we address these things as well we did a phylogeny paper today and those are always terribly technical (laughs) and and the students you know had had gripes about that but i said sorry it's a phylogeny paper there's not a whole lot i can do the good thing about phylogeny papers is their their conclusions are always very clear. You just look at the yes. tree that they came up with and you exactly. get all the content yep. you need. <laughs> yep. And there was a big full page tree on this one. It was good. They got out of it what they needed to. But then, of course, this translates over to news reports, media reports. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, well, what am I being told by the media? But how is it being spun? You know, how how are they spinning it? What's the what's the take on this? You know. So that translates over actually very nicely as well, reading these papers and then sort of realizing that there's two facets to any story, at least two, a cognitive and an effective. Yeah, I find that the news side of it is really interesting because especially when you're familiar with dinosaur research, they always try to weave in either like T-Rex or Jurassic Park, yep. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. no matter mm-hmm. how distant of a connection it is. And sometimes there's something really interesting and important about the paper that has nothing to do with those two, and it gets completely glazed over. <laughs> Absolutely. Every week I give my students in this class study questions. And one of the study questions two weeks ago was, do a Google search and report on a major dinosaur discovery from this year from this past year. And many of the students reported on uh, the discovery of, of feathers, quote unquote, feathers in, in pterosaurs, mm-hmm. the new integumentary structures that they're interpreting to be feathers. And I, I wrote them all back and I said, pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. I asked <laughs> you to give me a topic on dinosaurs. And every one of them wrote wrote back to me and said, but this headline says feathers <laughs> found in new dinosaurs. Every one of them said that. And so yeah. I said, you've learned a valuable lesson about the media now. So, <laughs> That's yep. actually pretty great. Yep. <laughs> you also have the water dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The water lizards, the Loch Ness monsters, the, exactly. Yeah. And of course, South Dakota, we're in big marine reptile country. Uh, we were in the Cretaceous Interior Seaway here. So so we've got to, I've got to dispel that right away. No, mosasaurs are not dinosaurs. No, plesiosaurs are not dinosaurs. Yeah. One day we'll probably expand to talking about other Mesozoic animals more often, but there's just so many dinosaurs all the time now that it's we can't even Pretty keep up much, with those. yeah. We're, <laughs> we're in this dinosaur renaissance. We're, we're in this period where we're discovering more dinosaur taxa at a rate higher than any time in history. So, yeah. <laughs> and then kind of related to the literature is the dinosaur documentaries, right? Yeah, and we I spend a good part of the end of the class looking at dinosaur documentaries. And 
there is a wonderful quote from a uh, a book I read, giving myself a little background on dinosaur documentaries because I'm a scientist. I'm not a documentarian. I'm not a uh, I'm not a you know a, a media type person. So before I started looking into this, I knew nothing about you know, uh, mass media, storytelling, that sort of thing. And so I did some background research and it was a book I read. And the very first line of this book talked about how the educational documentary is today viewed as the rotting carcass of science television. (laughs) (laughs) And so I use that in the paper. I use that in all my presentations. Now it is just, it is so, it paints such a wonderful picture, (laughs) but yeah, we, uh, we take a look at dinosaur documentaries. And what I do with the students is I encourage them to sort of pick the documentaries apart in terms of what are the facets of this documentary that are trying to teach you something versus what is a is a storytelling device. Mm. What is a storytelling device? And so this gets into how you portray, you know, how you teach teach science. And you can teach it in what's called a paradigmatic approach. In a paradigmatic approach, you give examples that are applicable across multiple situations. For example, the African elephant, the genus is Loxodontia, species is Africana. Well, everything has a genus and species name, every dinosaur, Allosaurus fragilis, Camarasaurus supremus. And so the paradigm of the Linnaean nomenclature can be illustrated with one example and applied to everything. The problem with this paradigmatic approach is anyone who sat in a classroom knows is it's boring. <laughs> yep, it induces a sleep-like state in your students. <laughs> yep. And so the converse that a lot of these documentaries engage in is a storytelling, which is basically a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I'm a strong proponent of the notion that we don't use storytelling in science enough. I think we need to rely on some storytelling techniques to get our points across a little more. But you have to be careful. Storytelling can veer away from education all too easily. And so I'll talk to the students about, you know, these are some of the tropes, the, you know, the standard storytelling themes. And let's see if you can identify these in the documentary versus where are the portions in the documentary where they're actually trying to to teach you something interesting yeah and they they actually catch on to it fairly fairly quickly so and they're able to discern storytelling versus uh paradigm in these documentaries pretty readily and then what we'll do is i'll have them maybe like assign a percentage so it's like well how much of this was paradigm versus how much was it uh storytelling and it'll be you know 60 40 50 50 whatever and then we'll break each side apart okay so what paradigms were good versus what facts were maybe stretched a little bit and did this story work in a scientific context or did it not work that reminds me of we've talked to a few paleontologists who have sort of worked on documentaries or been consulted on documentaries and they'll they'll often say like well i was happy because i got this piece of scientific information in there like you know i got feathers on this dinosaur or i mm-hmm. portrayed this you know t-rex as a caring parent but then they just had to have their t-rex battling a triceratops and so i said okay yeah we could have that in there and you know i'll help you <laughs> make it as scientifically it accurate as possible it is having worked on a few documentaries myself it is often like a quid pro quo yeah <laughs> sort of thing yeah yeah which really frustrates me because if you documentarians want a story 
paleontology is full of stories. Mm -hmm. It is full of wonderful stories. You don't have to give your plucky little baby Allosaur protagonist a human name (laughs) and follow it through the forest and make up a story. Paleontology is full of amazing stories, amazing people, you know, uh, examples of how what we knew about Allosaurus 150 years ago is nothing compared to what we know now. I mean, those stories are everywhere. You can tell these real stories without embellishment and get some good education accomplished in the process as well. So, Yeah, definitely. So in terms of, I guess, questions students should be asking while they're either reading like the news stories or, or watching these dinosaur documentaries, what, what kinds of things should they be looking for? So the big, the big problem you run into with critical thought, and it doesn't matter whether you're reading you know, a peer-reviewed dinosaur article or if you're watching the news, the issue you run into with critical thought is that it takes a long time for it to become a passive process. This is something that you actively have to engage in to start with and then develop that skill. And after many, many years, it becomes a bit more passive. I don't think it's ever passive. You know, I think you're always sort of actively questioning things. But that's, that's the big thing is you have to start questioning things. Um, and of course, as scientists, we're taught that from day one, you know, question things. But for a lot of people, that capacity is never instilled in them because they just never encounter, you know, the need for it, the need for it. And so that's one of the things that I encourage in students the most is like question everything and not just question, is that true? Question the motivation, question mm-hmm. the source, question, you know, the, the angle that is being taken, question everything. And yeah, if you want to take some time to learn about logical fallacies or, you know, storytelling techniques, that certainly helps, you know, but you don't necessarily need those specific details as long as you take everything with a little grain of salt and, and consider actively, well, what is going on here? What am I being told and why? That is the crucial first step in all this. And then, of course, this is going to be a lifelong process of honing these skills. Yeah. Where's the best place if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and your work? Uh, you can uh, take a look at my uh, webpage on the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology uh, webpage. I would just type in South Dakota School of Mines and Technology because the URL is is a bit it's a bit complicated it's not simple so yeah and just type me in and find that out and if you uh want to get a hold of me go ahead and i'm more than happy to distribute copies of my paper if you ask for them and stuff wonderful well thank you so much also thanks for sharing your paper with us oh no problem thanks you guys i'm i'm more than happy you know i i got into this type of work, you know, because as I reach sort of mid-academic career now and am aging a little bit, I'm wanting to get into a few more altruistic type pursuits. You know, that's really why I started this was we have a lot of students who are interested in paleontology Mm -hmm. and there's just not enough jobs out there for them. And so if I wanted to sleep at night, (laughs) I had to kind of satisfy myself in the notion that am am I giving these students something more than just knowing what a stegosaur versus a ankylosaur is, you know, I, I had to be given trying to give them something else. And so I've been pursuing a bit more sort of altruistic pursuits. I'm also on a three-year project. We're trying to make field work in the geosciences more inclusive to a wider variety of people. So, you know, my research is, I still do plenty of quote unquote, pure paleontological research, but I'm moving into some of these more sort of society facets of how can paleontology better affect society. 
Yeah. Nice. That's really cool. Well, we're huge fans of critical thinking, so... Thank you so much for helping spread the word. Oh, and, and thank goodness you're huge fans of it because there are plenty of people who don't seem to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for asking me, you guys. This was this was a surprise. I did not expect to, for the paper to have this far a reach. <laughs> Thanks so much, Darren. We enjoyed chatting, and it's really interesting hearing about the types of specific dinosaur examples that you can apply for when it comes to critical thinking. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now into our dinosaur of the day, Rotosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was a sauropod that lived in the Jurassic and what is now Eastern Australia, and it's estimated to be about 49 feet or 15 meters long and weighed about 9 tons. Although, I saw some estimates that said it ranged between 12 to 17 meters long. It lived among a lot of vegetation, cycads, ferns, mosses, in a wet, humid area, so it had a lot of things to eat. It was an herbivore. It was probably a browser, and it had a long neck you know, it's a sauropod, as well as hollow bones, and it had four clawed toes on each foot. The type species is Rotosaurus browni, and the name means rhodos lizard. It's named after Rhodus, it's a titan in Greek mythology. Heber Longman, a self-taught paleontologist who became director of the Queensland Museum, heard about a large skeleton back in 1924 in central Queensland at the Durham Down Station. There was a team of men working with horses that found it, and they thought it was bones from an elephant that ran away from a circus. Hmm. Arthur Brown, the station manager, sent parts of the bone to Longman. And that's why that's the species name. And the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. So it was named in 1926 by Heber Longman. There have been some misspellings. Of this dinosaur, there's the Radosaurus in 1955 by Della Parent and others, and Retiosaurus in 1979 by Yadagiri and others. But they're all the same dinosaur, the Rotosaurus dinosaur. Mary Wade and Alan Bartholomew found more fossil material in 1975, and then others found even more later. So there's been up to 40 vertebrae, part of the sacrum, parts of the pubic bones, and most of the right hind limb, and more that's been found. There's even more fossil material from the holotype that can still be excavated. A study in 2012 by Jane Eyre and others focused on the lower hind limb and found no evidence for being closely related to Jurassic sauropods from Asia. Hmm. Others had speculated that it was related to Shunosaurus because they lived around the same time. Yeah, and in terms of Australia, Asia was probably about as close as you get. Yep. Maybe Antarctica, but we don't know a lot about Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You can see Rotosaurus in The Land Before Time 2, The Great Valley Adventure. It's leaving water and following a herd of other sauropods, so pretty briefly. And our fun fact of the day is about Alvarezsaurus, specifically why it's named Alvarezsaurus. And Sabrina mentioned during her Dinosaur of the Day on Alvarezsaurus that it's named after Don Gregorio Alvarez, the historian 
not one of the Alvarez paleontologists, which is what you might expect. <laughs> but the obvious question then is, what does Don Gregorio have to do with Alvarezaurus? Did he have a really long fingernail? That's the obvious question. <laughs> That's my obvious. You know, Alvarezaurus with the, like the crazy long claws, the little tidy arms. Yeah, I guess. Like, maybe he had something in common with it. But no, he is a dermatologist from the Nyoken province, just like Alvarezaurus, and also Kaiju Titan, which we talked about earlier in the episode. And since the population of Neoken today is only about half a million, back then it was probably even smaller, 30 years ago when it was named. And since Gregorio Alvarez explored Neoken on horseback doing some anthropology, maybe he contributed some things about like where you might find a dinosaur bone. That's what I'm guessing in terms of the significance for the naming. It reminds me a little bit of Franz Nopsha with the exploring all over <laughs> southeastern Europe after doing some paleontology just kind of went on a anthropology kick so it seems like there's a fair amount of overlap between paleontology and anthropology so maybe archaeology not so different than paleontology after all it depends who you ask yeah <laughs> and the other thing that I thought could potentially be why they named it after him is if he stumbled across it while he was exploring but Alvarosaurus apparently wasn't found until the late 1980s or early 1990s, and it wasn't named until five years after Gregorio Alvarez died. And since he was 96 in 1991 when it was named, I don't think he was out on horseback looking for dinosaur fossils back then. So I think it was more his contributions to like local history, why they decided to honor him. What a fun fact. I thought so. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Well, you can also join our Patreon page, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.